Hey there on the deal fans, Sam Thornton here, owner of DL Sports and host of On the Deal podcast with a quick word before this episode gets underway. What I want you guys to do before this episode begins is to pull out your phone and follow the DL Sports Instagram page with the handle at DL Sports.com. That's at DL Sports C-O-M. The account has a wide range of content including sports updates, breaking news, podcast snippets, and more. So do me a favor and hit the follow button right now. And if you want to follow some of my own personal content, make sure to hit the follow button on my Twitter handle at Sam C. Thornton. Thanks, guys. And enjoy this episode. On today's episode of On the Deal podcast, we have NFL Week 17 breakdown and reactions for playoff bound teams. What is next for the Carolina Panthers following their elimination from the playoffs at the hands of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the weekend? We're going to break down the ceilings of each AFC playoff team, which I'm sure is totally going to backfire on me once play gets underway a couple of weeks from now. The college football playoff had some electric games in the semifinal round, so we're going to get into that and look into what to look forward to for the national championship game between TCU and Georgia. So as always, we have lots to cover, a lot to get into for this episode, so let's not waste any time and kick it to myself. Welcome to episode number 20 of On The Deal Podcast. First, I just want to say thank you everyone for tuning in for the 20th episode of the show. You know, this is definitely a small milestone for myself. I have a lot of bigger expectations in mind in the future for this show, for DL Sports in general, but I'm still very proud of it. We're going to begin the show, unfortunately, on a somber note that absolutely needs to be addressed first. I just want to say, you know, first of all, that sports mean so much to me. Um, you know, they mean so much to so many people on this earth. And, you know, you can call me corny or cliche here, but it's absolutely true when I say that sports makes everything better in this life, in my life, definitely, in sports fans' lives. It's something that we can't comprehend. You know, everybody in this life goes through hard shit. Everybody has problems. Everybody is dealing with something. Um, People might have disagreements with one another, especially in a world like today where everything is so politically divided, especially in America. But sports can patch those wounds up and make something whole. It brings people together to unite in something really meaningful. And, you know, when a situation occurs like the one on Monday night in Cincinnati, you realize that even though sports, you know, it's just a thing. Um, but there's always a deeper layer involved at its core. And it's about your relationships with other people through sports. You know, the entertainment, the competitiveness of the game, that's all at the surface of sports. And life is in the middle of it all. And I think that a lot of people missed that point on Monday night when DeMar Hamlin was taken off the field after going into cardiac arrest following a hit in the first quarter of their game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, you know, most people the ones that are true sports fans realized immediately something was wrong. And myself, I was really just trying to wrap my head around the whole situation um, and just the, the gravity of the situation. And the game should have been stopped immediately. I'm not going to get into 
people who only focused on the game itself or the, you know, the impacts of the game, the seeding impacts of the AFC, um, the medical impact of the, of the incident. But if anyone listening, you know, has that viewpoint, I highly encourage you to think about how there was somebody's life involved, a young man's life involved in this, you know, tragic situation. Um, you know, you could just tell right away following the hit that it was serious. The look on the players' faces said it all. You know, I thought the NFL as a whole did a good job with the situation. That's not one that's easy to handle. I thought the crew at ESPN did a terrific job handling the situation. The only question, I guess, that really needs to be answered is if there was a discussion to resume play. You know, there was reports first that the head coaches had to decide to resume play within a five-minute window. But I believe now that has been proven false. Um, some journalists say one thing, some say another thing. I hope it's false, but anyways, that's besides the point. When you get down to it, it's about Demar's life, and and how can anybody go out and and play again when something to that degree is involved? You know, it's not a question of whether you know how bad the injury is. Um, is he okay? You know, in a, in an injury standpoint. Um, you know, they're sitting there thinking, is my friend, is my brother, is he going to be alive? And that's really all I wanted to say about this situation. I thought it was amazing how everybody online through sports, Twitter, through sports, social media, through just my friends too, in general, my friends and family, we all sort of came together as one. And, you know, that sums up my opening remarks about sports as a whole. I don't care if the game ends up being played in week 18 or Regardless of when it's played, if they postpone it back a week to figure out the seating, um, that's besides the point right now. Uh, you know, who cares? That question doesn't need to be answered at this moment. I'm sending my prayers to the Hamlin family, the Buffalo Bills, and also to T. Higgins, who was the one who hit Hamlin on that play. You can imagine how horrible he feels about the situation. So keep that in mind as well as we continue on with this episode. And now I'm going to kick it to myself. All right, first order of business, the Green Bay Packers. What can I say? Pretty much the only team that came through for me this weekend, betting-wise. Um, you know, everybody has bad weekends. I had a feeling that they were going to solidify themselves as a contender over the weekend against the Vikings, and they absolutely did. Packers 41, Vikings 17. Let's start with the defense of the Green Bay Packers, because when you look at the score, you say to yourself, this was the Aaron Rodgers revenge game. This was his coming out party. But no, this was a Jerry Alexander on the Big Brother game. First, you had the kick return after the Vikings' first drive of the game. They scored a field goal, come back, kick return to the house. Green Bay's up 7-3. Then immediately afterwards, Kirk Cousins marches on the field, throws a pick six in the hands of Darnell Savage. The Vikings were never on offensively. They were not ready. They were not ready for that environment in Green Bay. As you might remember, in week one, the Vikings exploded offensively against the Packers. Um, Jari Alexander said that performance of the of the Vikings offense and specifically Justin Jefferson's performance that day um, was all a fluke. And he totally backed up his talk. And week one, Jefferson had over 100 yards receiving and two touchdowns. And on Sunday, this Sunday in this game, he had one reception, caught one pass, for 15 yards. Here's what Alexander had to say after the game. And tell Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless they need to, you know, watch what they say when they talk about me. You feel me? That's they need to watch what they put out talking about he a good corner, great corner. 
And for those who want to pull up the clip on Twitter of this, he's actually wearing one of the big hats with a straight face. Uh, so it was hard to take him seriously. But the game goes back to everything I talked about last week. The Vikings are fraudulent. Listen to this. They have a minus 19 point differential on the season, and they've won 12 games. They can't beat quality opponents without their help. They haven't beaten a single quality opponent all year except for the Buffalo Bills, which I'm going to take some of Alexander's remarks out of his mouth. That was a fraudulent game. That was a fluke game. They can't beat teams without opponents beating themselves in one way or another. I think they are a first-round exit waiting to be taken out. I'll be interested to see who they match up against, and if it's the New York Giants who have locked up the number six seed in the NFC playoffs, I think they might get beat this time around. As we know, that was a walk-off field goal win for the Minnesota Vikings and Minnesota at home, I think it was three weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago. So that's going to be a game to watch for sure if they are matched up with one another. But I want to go back to the Packers. The Packers just need to win to get into the playoffs. They would get the seventh seed in the NFC. The three remaining teams fighting for a spot are them, the Lions, who they play on Sunday against one another, the Packers and the Lions, and the Seahawks. The Packers just need to win to get in. The Lions need to win against the Packers, and the Seahawks need to lose. And the Seahawks need to win, and the Packers have to lose. So I'm not sure what the line is for that game on Sunday, but you can guarantee I am slamming the Packers. I remember when we were on week five of the NFL season, people thought there wouldn't be a Brady or a Rodgers in the playoffs. And here we are. This is what Aaron Rodgers had to say following their win. I do believe in the power of uh, manifestation. And uh, I do believe in momentum. I believe of the, I believe strongly in the force of the mind. And when you start to believe something strongly that some miraculous things can happen. What do they got to say now? Just crazy. So when you look at what flipped the switch for this team, you know, you're, you're thinking to yourself, they were on a one in seven stretch and then won four straight ever since. During that time, the best unit of the Packers was their special teams, which is extremely ironic considering their history in that area. Two major things have occurred. First, this is obvious. It's Aaron Rodgers trusting his receivers and the offense becoming more creative as a scheme. Through the first few weeks and even in the middle of the season, we saw Rodgers hanging his head every time he would lead out his unit onto the field on offense. He had no confidence. He had no confidence in his body language. The weapons had no confidence themselves because obviously their Hall of Fame quarterback had no trust in them. So how can you have any confidence? But then something changed in that game against the Los Angeles Rams a few weeks ago. Christian Watson had become a player that saw himself as the number one guy finally. He truly, truly believed it. In the first few weeks of the year, Rodgers always knew that Watson could be that guy to step in as the number one. But when you're a first or second year player, those thoughts of doubt have to be in your mind. I mean, you're just a kid. You're 21, 22 years old. You're thinking, holy shit, Aaron Rodgers wants me to be the guy for him? I'm a successor to Devontae Adams, one of the best wide receivers in the modern era of football? I better not screw this up. I better not screw this up. I'm in the middle of Wisconsin, in the middle of nowhere. The fans love us. I don't want to let them down. Then the reps got there. They were patient. 
They kept going. And within the offensive scheme, Rodgers wasn't throwing RPOs every other down. Earlier in the season, he was forcing balls on plays to guys like Alan Lazard because he trusted them more. He had more he had more familiarity with him over the years. One of the few receivers that didn't leave Green Bay. Meanwhile, guys like Romeo Dobbs and Kristen Watson would be wide open on other routes and they were never targeted. This also helps that Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon have carried the ball more on late down conversions, which again takes some pressure off the younger receivers. Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers have created an offense where they're putting the young guys in their best possible positions on the field to win the game. They're running routes that make sense for them, and they're ready for it. The scary thing is with this Green Bay Packers team is you can totally ignore that 8-8 record. You could just pick it up and toss it out the window. Who they've become in the last month with the Vikings proving themselves as frauds and the Eagles fading fast due to injury, I would put them in a debate as being the third best team in the NFC right now. Tell me a team in the playoffs who wants to face them in the first round. And a lot of that has to do with this defense that I want to go back to before we move on. Their defensive line is relatively stable. You know, it's improved no doubt throughout the course of the year. But the Packers' secondary has finally become what we thought they would be with Eric Stokes, Jair Alexander, and Russell Douglas, who were all top 30 corners before the year began. And we didn't hear from them once, really, until Week 10 because they were busy playing this zone defense instead of press coverage, which is where they excel in. After this game against the Vikings concluded, I believe it was Russell Douglas. I could be wrong. This is off the top of my head here, so I could be wrong. He said that they were overprepared for this game. He said, yeah, we've, we've been texting and FaceTiming all week. We've been getting together after hours, studying the ins and outs of roots and, you know, viewing it, how each of them see it. Um, the energy was really here this week. We were overprepared. And, you know, I think that's a big reason why we won. And that energy was brought clearly. And it's all because of this adversity they faced earlier on in the season. A reporter followed up with him and was like, hey, you know, has, has this type of synergy been going on all year long or is this a recent thing? He said, nah, this is, this is a recent thing. We just started doing this a few weeks ago. And that's bingo. That is the X on the treasure map because that's why they're winning games. They have eight takeaways in the last three games. And yeah, some of those opponents weren't great, but that's still a positive sign to think about. Nobody wants to face this team right now, and I could see them making a deep run into the playoffs. They are a top three team in the NFC right now, and don't be shocked if they make it to the Super Bowl. The thing is, I usually don't like rooting for the Packers because they're so they're so consistent all year, right? They have all these great players. They do all the little things right. Aaron Rodgers is just playing out of his mind week in and week out. They play so well. They, they set a high standard. But because of this story of adversity, they kind of are playing the underdog role this year. How can you sort of not be rooting for them, even slightly? Like, how could you not enjoy what they're doing and with the Carolina Panthers out of the picture I might as well take my loyalties over to them in the NFC playoffs for now and let's talk about the Panthers why don't we the Panthers they missed out on on playoff football falling to the Buccaneers 30 to 24 on Sunday and well you know they tried I don't want to pump my brakes too hard here but I'm two for two so far on some predictions well sort of I was spot on about the Packers but I was also right about my major concern for this game between the Bucks and the Panthers, which was J.C. Horn's injury, which 
absolutely allowed Mike Evans more freedom, and he had three touchdowns, and Brady had over 400 yards as a senior citizen. So I'm going to give myself a pass on that. I'll give myself a pass. I'm not going to feel too bad. I'll touch on the Bucks real fast first before I talk about what's next for the Panthers. I feel much differently about the Buccaneers' chances opposed to the Packers. You know, Sam Darnold still low-key diced up the Buccaneers on some deep balls. I don't think their defense will stand a chance against the Cowboys' weapons. And that's who they're likely going to play, which is a Week 1 rematch, another Week 1 rematch that we were just talking about. Like, I really don't think there's a chance in hell that that can happen. I, I, I don't think that they can match up well against the Cowboys on that side of the ball. And even, even if the Cowboys put up more than 30 points on them, I don't think Brady with his offense right now can match a shootout with him. He just can't. The Cowboys also just have too many guys on that defensive line to disrupt Brady's time. You know, throughout his whole career, the pass rush has been his weakness. That's been his weak spot. That's where he gets exposed every single time. So I'm not expecting him to have a lot of time in the pocket. He's not a mobile quarterback, as we know. The good news, though, the good news for the Buccaneers, if you're a Buccaneers fan listening to this, it looks like Christian Wirtz is going to be back. It looks like Ryan Jensen will return as the Bucs center for the playoffs. Those are two huge pieces that were gone for their offensive line that was totally dismantled the entire season. One of the worst offensive lines in the NFL, if not the worst unit in that area. But I really don't think it's going to be enough. Not to mention the Bucks run game has been a huge letdown. Um, I'm never catch catch me never drafting Leonard Fournette in fantasy football ever again. But here's the kicker: Tom Brady is undefeated against the Cowboys in his career. So, are you going to take that gamble? Are you going to bet on this? This is what this is what it all comes down to, right? Tom Brady has never lost to the Cowboys. I think he's ten and zero in his career. Are you going to take Tom Brady in a home game to a team he's never lost to with that chip on his shoulder and with those offensive line pieces back? Or are you going to take the Dallas Cowboys, who we know their history in the playoffs, the history of letdown, in a away game, the fans are going to be rowdy. I still don't think it's going to be enough for them. Now on to the Panthers. There's holes to fill, right? The biggest one is clearly who is going to coach them. Who's going to be the coach of the Carolina Panthers next year? And I'm an advocate of Steve Wilkes. To go from the laughingstock of the NFL into the team that was one win away from making the playoffs. And what's hilarious is the Panthers got the best of both worlds here because they were one win away from making the playoffs. But they will still get a top 10 pick because the NFC South is so bad. But either way, it's really, really hard to be an NFL coach, as I assume everybody can imagine. And be able to have the team rally around you in the first place is even tougher to go into. But when there's a broken locker room like the Panthers had, you know, that is almost an impossible task, an impossible situation to overcome. It really is. And the players love Steve Wilkes. They love him. But unfortunately, he's not going to get the job because David Tepper is an asshole. And for those who don't know David Tepper, he is the owner of the Carolina Panthers. Personally, not a fan, as you can tell. Um, I'm going to put it bluntly. He doesn't give a shit about the team. He wants the, next, he wants the next shiny thing. He's a gambling man. His entire career in Charlotte, he's been that way. He gambled on Matt Rule. 
He gambled on all the quarterbacks. So let's see which way he goes. And there's been two names out there so far. One of them is 49ers defensive coordinator D'Amico Ryans. The other is Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh. Now let's take a look at both these options. D'Amico Ryans would be fantastic. He would be a fantastic hire. He's going to get hired somewhere. The 49ers obviously have the best defense in the NFL. I've heard the players absolutely love to buy into everything he puts out. Apparently, he gets you know just so hyped up for the games. He has so much energy to the team, even on the offensive side before games inside the locker room. So he's going to be a huge morale guy. Really, really tough, hard-nosed, just a football guy. Just an all-around football guy. He's going to be a head coach somewhere, like I said, next year. So it might as well be us. This would be a great fit in the sense of, okay, the Panthers are a defensive-minded team, right? They have more weapons on their defense. That's not a surprise to anybody. And at times this year and last year, of course, I felt like the Panthers' defense didn't play up to their potential. But there's been some games like the Seahawks game, like the Bucks game in Week 7, that you say, you know, wow, this is a top 10 unit. I think their ceiling is top 5. So he would obviously elevate their play. A con, of course, is you know the offensive side of the ball, which has more question marks, more holes to cover. Most notably, the quarterback position, which the Panthers are likely to select a quarterback in this year's draft. So it would be nice to get another skill position in the draft as well, perhaps a tight end or running back, but the quarterback is the main priority, especially with this stacked class coming in this year. If they were to select a guy like C.J. Stroud, for instance, hypothetically, Panthers take him ninth overall, how would he perform with the main guidance from offensive coordinator Ben McAdoo? How would Ryans be able to step in and have some influence on a guy that needs to save, and he does, he needs to save the franchise. He needs to put people in the seats of Bank of America Stadium. That's where Harbaugh comes in. Harbaugh would be a better fit as a former quarterback himself, as someone who led Colin Kaepernick to the Super Bowl in 2012. And here come the cons. And I think the cons of Harbaugh outweigh the debate for Ryan's because at the end of the day, he was coaching college football for over a decade. He's been out of the loop for a while. So it doesn't really make sense to me when people say, well, yeah, he's a proven winner on both sides. But he's been with Michigan for a decade now. So that takes some time to readjust. I don't care who you are. And, you know, Michigan's been rolling. So why would he want to even jump that ship when they're this far away from a national title, this far away with a guy like J.J. McCarthy, who has a lot of story left to write at Michigan. He was a freshman this year. I think he's going to be a Heisman winner one day. So it'd be hard to leave that and come to Charlotte and try to fix an entire team. And for the players to buy into a college guy after just firing one in Matt Rule, you know, they might have similar charisma. So who knows? I just think the intensity Ryan's brings to the table would resonate with the players more. Then, of course, we have Steve Wilkes, who has the factor of a proven coach, which is huge. But I think the name just isn't sexy enough for David Tepper. It's not. And if I were him, and I'm not sure if this has ever been done before, I would literally set up an official visit for potential coaches. And that might seem childish, but bring in Harbaugh for a visit with the team. Let him go out with the guys. Do the same for Ryans. See who they want. 
or just let the captains go out with them. It's all about ego and power with a lot of these owners, and it's honestly just so easy to let your players decide and ask who they want. Because at the end of the day, if they hate the coach, if they aren't buying into the system, they aren't going to play hard, and your franchise is never going to be revamped. Let's transition to the AFC now. I think I have an issue, guys. I literally cannot stop thinking about the AFC playoffs. It's going to be, I mean, it's going to be so good. It's going to be so good. Every single matchup is going to be must-watch television. So I feel like it's only right that I go through each team and talk about their individual ceilings and expectations for the playoffs. I tried to put them in categories based on tier. So that's what we're going to try to do here. That's the way we're going to conduct this sort of. Um, my first tier is a no-brainer. We have the Chiefs, the Bills, and the Bengals. The Chiefs, for whatever reason, have had trouble against the Broncos this year. But of course, they are the favorite to win the AFC until they're taken down. I'm sorry, unless it happens two years in a row. I don't see them not being the favorite at the end of the day with a guy like Patrick Mahomes leading that team. It's going to be interesting to see how seeding plays out with these three teams. I think all three of these teams are Super Bowl contenders. And I'm actually going to put the Bengals as of right now, at 1A, this has nothing to do with betting favorites. This is just where things stand based on this season. But I still think the but I still think the Chiefs are the team to beat. The Bengals are at 1A, the Bills at 1B, and then the Chiefs at 1C. That's how I'm going to rank them at the moment based on them playing one another throughout this year. And early on in the game between the Bills and the Bengals, I noticed that although the Bills have the best red zone defense in the NFL, the Bengals can beat them in scoring because they have the best receiving core in the league. I mean, once they get past midfield, they can beat you in so many ways. I don't even know how you can decide who you want to cover in that situation. Like the defensive coordinators in the playoffs are going to have nightmares thinking about, do I, you know, do I go over to Jamar Chase? Do we play zone coverage? Do we play man? I, I don't know how they're going to do it. They also have a healthier defense than the Bills right now. The Bills are ba have been just banged up and decimated, especially on their secondary all year long. And then the Von Miller one hurts, of course. And they have a better roster top to bottom than the Chiefs do. It's just a matter of Patrick Mahomes being who he is in the playoffs. And I hate to beat around the dead bush, but that's just the way it is right now. For the Bengals to win the Super Bowl, they need their defense to continue to answer the bell like they've been doing all year long. They've exceeded expectations all season. They have to continue to stay strong in the worst area of their defense, which is crazy enough against quarterback design runs. They rank bottom five in that area. So if they were to match up against a guy like Josh Allen, and this was something that I was looking forward to watching, and I will look forward to watching if they play again, Josh Allen is going to have a field day against this against this defense with rushing yards. If they play again, I, I I took the bet on Monday night. I had his over rushing yards. I thought it was an absolute lock of a bet, and he had 20 rushing yards and five minutes into his drive. The Bengals offense, we know what it can do. Even if they wanted to switch things up, they can always turn the ball over to Joe Mixon, who, can, who many people forget was one of the best backs in football all season. He had over 1,200 yards, so that's always something they can rely on. Um, I don't have any questions about the Cincinnati Bengals offense. I don't have any questions there. They even have like other pieces that just come out of nowhere and just make big plays for them. Um, it's going to be on this defense to contain guys, contain Patrick Mahomes, contain a guy like Lamar Jackson if they were to play them in the first round. Um, 
you know, that's something they have to look forward to. That's something they have to utilize. That's something they have to work on throughout the course of, of their training before they gear up for the Super Bowl run. I think for the Bills to win the Super Bowl, it's crazy because he makes up for it with his gritty play and his rushing ability. But Josh Allen, he has to stop turning the ball over. It's gone quietly, but he has 13 interceptions this year and 18 total giveaways. That's second among QBs. Second. And if it was anybody else's name, we would be questioning what I just said. He can't turn the ball over like that against a team like the Chiefs, the Bengals in the playoffs. And we know this already with Patrick Mahomes. To beat the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, you need to keep them off the field as long as possible. That is the ultimate compliment as a competitor, but it is true. Look at how the Bengals beat them last year. You have to go on long, big boy football drives, and you have to grind them out. You have to have possession in your favor, and those giveaways are going to come back to bite them at some point. It just will. Now let's get to the Chiefs. For the Chiefs to get the job done and do what they do, they need to get going on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, they rank 20th in DVOA, and... If you don't have a guy like Chris Jones on your pass rush, it would be even worse. I mean, he, besides Patrick Mahomes, he is the MVP. He is the anchor of this team. He's the only guy who, seemed to make, who seems to make big plays in the most important times of the game. So I needed to have deeper production from their players. I need to see other players make an impact. Other than that, you cannot count this team out as long as 15 is with them. Tier 2, we have Jacksonville, the Chargers, and the Ravens. That's four, five, and six seeds as we sit right now heading into the final week of the year. I think it's appropriate tier. I think this is an appropriate tier to group together, and all three of these teams are exciting because you never know what could happen. The Jaguars might win the division this weekend. I think they will, so I'm going to put them at the four seed right now. Regardless of their AFC South division, they are going to be the four seed. They have become, and I've said it before, such an exciting team to watch over the last few weeks. And Trevor Lawrence is oozing with confidence. The media is all over him. He is just, him and Doug Peterson are just on the same page. They get each other. What he has become in this year, as opposed to last year with Urban Meyer, is just revolutionary. And he can't feel any better about the way he's playing right now. And I think the team is surrounding him as well with that. So they're just on the up. The Chargers... They were my Super Bowl pick to begin the year, and a lot of other people had that too. They were riddled with injuries, but they have a lot of guys back. Justin Herbert's a beast. Austin Eckler is an absolute monster. I don't think anybody wants to see that offense in the first round. Like the Bengals, for instance, that would be really hard. That would be a really hard first wild card game to play. And the Ravens have one of the best defenses in the league, and they haven't let up multiple touchdowns in forever, it seemed like, until their game against the Steelers this week. Uh, and also with Lamar coming back, like I said earlier in the postseason, that's always going to be a threat when you have a former MVP in the playoffs. But going back to the Jaguars, I think the ceiling for this team is to win their first game. To make it to the divisional round would be huge for them. I think they could if they were to play Baltimore, who they recently beat before Lamar Jackson got hurt. They won 28-27. to I think that was in Week 8 or Week 9, something like that. But either way, they've proven that they can beat them before on their home field. They'll have home field advantage too because of the division championship if they were to clinch this weekend against the Titans. And while they've shown to win on the road a few times this year, I don't think they'd be able to pull anything off against the top tier teams in the next round and the divisional round. 
to reach their ceiling, they're going to have to be like the Bills. They're going to have to control turning the ball over. They have 21 turnovers this year, which is top 10 in the league, in a stacked conference against a team like Baltimore, who can give you trouble on the ground and force fumbles. They can you know, disrupt you offensively um, with your momentum driving down the field late in games. That's something that you don't want to happen. So watch out for that. They have to take care of the football for sure. The Chargers, I'm really, really, really excited to dissect them because although they're in their second tier here, they are officially my dark horse. And I think this team can win it all. I really do. They have the talent on paper, despite their injuries. On paper, they have a team that can absolutely make a run. What's impressed me the most from them has been their defense, which first caught my eye against the Dolphins a few weeks ago on Sunday Night Football, but it's been rolling into the last few weeks. They've just carried over that momentum week in and week out. Over the last eight quarters, the Chargers have only given up one touchdown and a total of 215 passing yards. That, I mean, that says it all. And more importantly, they've surrendered teams to punting the ball after big stops on third down, and they've done it all without their star, Derwin James Jr., their best safety. It's led to roles being put in place by Kyle Van Noy, who is a Super Bowl champion. He was with the Patriots a few years ago. He's had four sacks in the last four games, and that's someone who needs to keep that same energy when Joey Bosa returns from an injury as well. So they're, they're loading up. They're loading back up. They're gearing back up. They've won a few games in a row now. They have a lot of confidence as well. That's the reason for their success. I think they've had a mentality of playing loose. They know that they finally locked in a spot in the playoffs, so they don't have to worry about that pressure of Brandon Staley choking in the regular season finale again. I think the key for this team moving forward is to win in the trenches. The O-line and the D-line need to be great. With all the star-studded AFC quarterbacks, it's going to be important to get pressure on them at all times. You need to give Justin Herbert as much time as possible so that he can execute his throws. And top to bottom, really, when you look at every single quarterback in the league, he's probably the most dangerous quarterback in the NFL when he has time to throw the ball and execute his play. He can make throws that I don't even think Mahomes can. I don't even think Allen can in terms of pure arm strength and accuracy all in one. So that's going to be important for the offensive line to keep playing well. And it helps when you have Eckler in the backfield too if you're struggling in the past game or if you go into a cold weather environment. Mike Williams, Keenan Allen are healthy now too. So even if they play a home game, even if they play in a dome, everything is looking up for them if you are a Los Angeles Chargers fan. I wouldn't be shocked at all if they were to make a run to the AFC Championship game and they played decently well on the road with a 5-3 record. The three losses that they've had stand out to me more than the five wins because two of those three losses were one-score games against the Chiefs and the 49ers. So, I mean, that tells you all you need to know. Two of the best teams in the league right now. The Ravens are the final team in this tier, and I almost want to put them in the tier below because of their offensive struggles. I think their ceiling is to win their first game only because of Lamar Jackson coming back from injury. But honestly, even when he does come back, it's still going to be very hard to adjust into that system again and put up major points against a team that can score in huge numbers like the Bengals or the Jaguars, depending on who the seeding has them up lining up against. I think both these teams can put up significant points on their defense. Pittsburgh put up 18 on them. Okay, They put up 18 on them on Sunday Night Football, and Kenny Pickett has been one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL stat-wise. So it just shows you that even with their historically great defense, if there's not any momentum going on the offensive side of the ball, 
there's not going to be any sense of encouragement for the defense to go out there and say, all right, guys, let's go. Let's get another stop. Offense is clicking. We're going to get one. The most touchdowns by a player on their offense, and this is really just the eye-opener here, kind of tells the whole story, it's Mark Andrews, and he has five. He has five. Their tight end leads them in touchdowns with five. Okay? That's just not going to get the job done. They're lucky they have Justin Tucker on their team because whenever they get even close to midfield, they can just say, all right, we've got three points. Three points. It's good. I remember hopping into a random Ravens Twitter space last week before they played the Atlanta Falcons. This was week 16. And everybody in there was just talking about how embarrassing their offense has been. You know, who's going to be the one to step up besides Mark to get some points? You know, Rashad Bateman goes down in week six. It's hard to get that production. Guys like Likely, guys like Duverday, you know, who's going to be the guy? I just don't think that their offense is going to be enough, and I would be willing to put them down in this next tier that we're about to get to. In this final tier, a few teams are in here based on who is going to take the final playoff spot. We have the Patriots, the Dolphins, and the Steelers. I'll start with the Patriots because I think they're going to be the ones to get that last spot, even playing against the Bills this weekend. At least they look like they're going to be the best chance to make it out of those three. Maybe you can make an argument for the Steelers at this point. But honestly, I'm not excited about really any of these teams. It would be the Dolphins for sure. But with all the Tua problems, just not a very sexy team to watch right now. I think that the ceiling is just to make the playoffs in this moment. And that goes for the Patriots in this sense of, okay, you know, they're in. They're in the playoffs. But the offense sucks. They're basically the Jets with a slightly better quarterback. I texted my friend this on Sunday when I was watching the Patriots and Dolphins game on red zone. I was like, damn, you know, Mac Jones is kind of really bad. And he said, yeah, he's not that good. And what's even worse is his attitude on the field, which I agree with despite struggles on offense with Patricia, which is definitely going to leak into the playoffs against the top seed. Eventually the only reason they almost beat the Bengals and why they beat the Dolphins was because of their scoring defense, which, is, which isn't something that you can count on every single game in the playoffs, let alone in the regular season. You know, it's just not going to be fun to watch at times. That's not a recipe for success. You cannot count on your defense, create turnovers for you, and score points week in and week out. It's just not, it's just not something that's going to happen if you're going to make even a slight run in the playoffs. The Dolphins, I don't even know what's going on with them, but I remember Teddy Bridgewater from Carolina all too well. The thing about him is he starts out as a legit starter in the league during his time in Minnesota, and then he gets injured, and then he's a number one backup, and then you have him on the roster. But when he gets to Carolina, everybody realizes that, you know, this isn't going to work out. He's too careless with the football, not enough playmaking ability late in the game. That injury is really what set him apart. So it's not looking good for the Dolphins right now. I don't know if two is going to play the rest of the year. And, you know, that just sucks because... They were so much fun to root for during the year, especially in the early part of the season. But if they were to make it, I don't see them pulling out anything unless Tua were 100% healthy and ready to go. Then the final team here, the Steelers, they are definitely the most interesting team in this AFC playoff hunt because all year long you've said to yourself, like, this team sucks. Um, Mike Tomlin is finally going to have a losing record. Uh, like, what is what is the earth right now? They can't score. They can't score to save their life. They have the fourth lowest point total of the season out of any team in the NFL. The only teams worse than them on scoring are the Colts, 
the Texans, and the Broncos. And obviously, not great company. You saw how they matched up against a great AFC team like the Bills on the road in the middle of the season, and that really just showed you how lopsided those two teams were. So I think this is the team that the top seeds want to see the most in their first game. It just is. They also have the lowest total of passing touchdowns in the league because they give the ball to Najee Harris all the time, so there's just no diversity in their offense whatsoever. Kenny Pickett, like I said, has been struggling all year long. I'm not impressed with the recent wins over the Raiders and the Ravens, honestly. It makes no difference to me at this point. It would be a winning season if the Steelers were to get that last playoff spot. Okay, we have the college football playoff semifinals over the weekend. Initial impressions. That was fucking awesome. I think it was over 175 points scored combined between the two games. And that just gives you more hope for expansion too with the 12-team playoff. I hope we get that same energy with those expansion games too down the line. But let's dive into the first game. It was TCU and Michigan. TCU advances to the college football playoff national championship game. They beat Michigan 51-45. to TCU's offense is unreal. Max Duggan, and I mean he did his job despite a couple of turnovers, but they won the game on the ground. Amari DeMercado. This guy is a workhorse because of Kendra Miller injured. 150 yards rushing. He averaged 9 yards per carry, 8.8 yards per carry against the Michigan defense that everybody which just ooing and aahing over. But I'm sorry. This is what happens when you play against Nebraska and Rutgers every Saturday at noon on Fox. I'm sorry. That's just what happens. I don't make the rules, but you can't tell me that's not the reason why Michigan was ranked third defensively this season. That's a big reason why I believe TCU would keep this game close, and that's also why I had them plus 7.5. It was always the Froggies, people. Always the Froggies. But let's go back to Demarcado real quick because you have to shine light on this kid. Before this game, his highest rushing total was 65 yards against Texas. And he's been at his best all year long against the best teams. Every single ranked opponent they played against this season, he's been at his best. And that's just a great sign to have, great trend to have as a player. It just ties into their underdog platform. TCU was picked, was picked to finish 7th in the Big 12. 7th. Seventh place, first-year head coach. They were left out of the Big 12 when it was first formed in the mid-1990s, and now they are the first team from the Big 12 to win a game in the college football playoff and the first team to make a national championship since Texas. All week long, I talked about it on the last pod. The media was talking about it on talk shows. Fans were talking about it. Betting experts were talking about it. It was the physicality of Michigan that would outweigh TCU in the trenches on both sides of the line. And that just wasn't the case at all with the run game being so dominant and TCU excelled in their strengths in the explosive plays like I talked about last week too, like the 72-yard touchdown from Quentin Johnson that put them up 10 late in the game. So everyone was wrong about Michigan being able to maintain the explosive plays from TCU. I was wrong in the sense of viewing it more so about the defenses TCU has seen this year in the Big 12 versus the offenses Michigan has gone up against this season because they had 11 missed tackles. They blew a lot of coverages, and I can relate to this throughout this year as an Alabama fan. When you give up 50 points, you aren't going to win the game, no matter how well the offense plays. 45 points should be enough to win the game, and it wasn't. Then we had Georgia and Ohio State. 
Georgia gets the win as the clock strikes midnight into 2023. Literally, the game-winning kick goes through the uprights at midnight. It feels almost scripted. Georgia gets the win, advances in a thriller, 42-41. They got incredibly fortunate to win this game. Not the Georgia team that I expected to show up by any means. The six-and-a-half lock was a total miss, but the Equinox parlay hit because I had them at Moneyline. So, road isn't over, people. I'm not done yet. Thoughts on the game, though. I actually feel kind of bad for Ohio State because C.J. Stroud was going off, and I think he's going to be our future quarterback in Carolina. He had four touchdowns, but you fail to build that lead and protect those explosive plays, and a team like Georgia is just not going to fade away. They always find a way to get back into the game. They're national champions for a reason. I do want to mention that Marvin Harrison went down with that injury early in their game. That definitely should have been a targeting call. I don't know how it wasn't when Ohio State was rolling. This had a very similar vibe of when Jamison Williams went down against them in the national championship game, and Georgia went on to take the natty. And we all know what Georgia's kryptonite is on defense now. It's an explosive receiver. They can't cover them when an offensive game plan is executed correctly. I saw other people bring up this point too. Some people say, yeah, I agree with that. Others are like, okay, yeah, but it's a contact sport. People get hurt all the time. I'm not saying that Georgia purposely hurts people, purposely injures people, but don't get the narrative twisted. All I'm alluding to is the point of they've gotten really fortunate that the player who was dicing them up all game long has gone out of the game twice now in huge spots of the season. In this game against Ohio State, in the game in the national championship last year against Alabama, and then in the game last year against Alabama and the SEC championship, John Mechie and Jamison Williams had a field day against that Georgia defense, the historical Georgia defense, so-called. And someone who can tear them up in the national championship game for TCU is Quentin Johnson, an All-American, one of the best receivers in the country. TCU is a 13.5-point underdog that has now dropped to 125 with the public being all over TCU, I think I saw a stat where it's already 75% of the public is on TCU spread, which is just absurd. But when you have a spread that big in a national championship game, the, the way that TCU performed, it's kind of hard not to lean that way at the moment. And it's been hard for me to decide what I'm going to do because on one side of the table, you think about how TCU proved people wrong against Michigan, even when they led wire to wire. They didn't trail once in that game. They have more ranked wins than Georgia does. They have six to Georgia's four. Georgia struggled against Ohio State, a team that lost to Michigan. That's an awfully large spread with all those factors. But when you see it the other way, one is, of course, the public is all over TCU outright and with the spread. So that's never a good thing, is it better? That's not a trend you want to see. But Georgia, they have the five stars. They have, the first national they have the first national title under them, so they're going to come out most likely calmer. You just feel at some point this Georgia team is going to have a game like the one they had against Tennessee. And I don't think they'll take this TCU team lightly either. They understand that this team has unreal confidence, that they are legit. You can't think of them as an afterthought. There's three factors here you need to pay attention to in this title game. Georgia's resiliency. TCU's passing ability, and Georgia's ability to hang around in games. Georgia, since last year's title game, has had the ability 
to win the game in the fourth quarter. They finished really well, and you got to give credit to Kirby Smart for that. They also hang around, man. You have to kill them twice. They're like a three-headed snake. You have to beat in every single one of those heads because if you want them dead, you got to pull away. You cannot keep this game within 10 points. TCU has to do that in this game too. Now here's the number one thing we need to watch for. TCU has talked about earlier, they are so explosive and can break out at any moment. And Georgia has been really poor in their last two games in their past defense with over 800 yards allowed against LSU and Ohio State. That's not something that's favorable. So I think TCU is going to capitalize on that. They're going to do what they do best, which is hang around and stay strong and might even have a lead in there throughout the game. Georgia will. If TCU wants to cover in this game, they can't let things get out of hand either. So it'll be essential for them to score first and keep the score close early, especially through the first half. Score early, score often. I haven't decided on my pick yet, but I'm leaning towards TCU spread. If it drops to 10.5 or lower, or maybe even 11.5, I'm going to go Georgia. But I'll make a score prediction. I'll come up with my bet prediction on my Twitter account. I have Georgia winning back-to-back championships. Final score, 44-31. All right, guys, that is it for this episode of On The Deal Podcast. Again, thank you guys so much. 20 episodes in, 20 more to go, 100 more to go, 1,000 more to go. Super excited about what we're doing here. I appreciate your support as always. And uh, we have some really good episodes coming up. We're going to have some really good guests on here in a little bit. As always, I appreciate your support. And we will be back next week with a brand new episode.